0: This is T.D.P.S. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books.
1: (laughs) Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting
0: right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases.
1: Which you'll give me copies of. Because I'm sitting right here.
0: Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. (laughs) And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Every now and then we should include the pre-show. We should include the stuff we talk about right before we start rolling. Because sometimes it's fun. But I think what we need are your facial expressions when I do something at the last minute right before we start.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that facial expressions are a big part of uh, podcasts. podcasts, But um, we could do like... A series of photographs, and we could say, and now photograph three. And now photograph seven, uh, you know, for which facial expression I might have at any... Kling! Right, at any given moment. <laughs>
0: it's like those old children's education
1: records Right. right? that when you were little. Or the film strip that advances right. when you uh, when you hear the sound. Um do they still have film strips? I wonder, that was such a primitive thing that was a big deal when I was in school, and but I can't imagine they still do it.
0: I'm forgetting the name of the thing they had when I was a child. Viewfi- it was not viewfinders, but it was, they were red, and you, had, it was like a little slide machine for a oh, child, yeah. a slide projector. I think they
1: still have those. Yeah.
0: Those were, I had the Jaws 3D one. What were those
1: called? Oh I love God. those.
0: People are yelling at our podcast. Right?
1: They were called. Blah, blah.
0: Right. Our, Brandon, our sound genius, they were called viewfinders, I'm being told by the booth.
1: Oh, okay. Well, so you got okay. it right. Oh, look who at knew? that. Locked
0: up. I need to learn to trust myself. That's where I'm at right now
1: in my oh, life. Oh, my God. Get Me a stick view master. I'm
0: being told we have another so voice was from the booth. In fact wrong. He was uh, wrong, he was wrong. But yeah,
1: view master that sounds better because I was like, viewfinder, that doesn't seem yeah, because yeah, it but it was basically a stereopticon, right? Exactly. It was a plastic, um, they'll be here for the next five billion years. Uh, stereopticon, that, yeah gave you a 3d view mm-hmm. of different things that yeah I had one when I was a kid I' wonder very if they, cool I bet they still have them they were still pretty great
0: I'm sure they probably cost fifty thousand dollars but
1: they were really kind of primid- primitive yeah. it was a paper disc with two little pieces of film like slide films in them and when you look
0: I'm being told by the booth on that Amazon. they're available for 20 bucks on Amazon That's Thank you great. master control thank you. Um. So that's an appropriate topic, because this is another installment in the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival here at TDPS, right? presents Christopher Kling. and Eric Kling. <laughs> We're going to tell people what the Kling is about. I think we should. <laughs> Can we tell? Can I put you on the spot and tell you can explain the cling joke? Oh, is that
1: what you meant by yes. it? Yes. Oh, I thought you were doing the thing from film strips where they no. when it was time to advance it to the next frame. No. Did you ever have film strips when you were in school? You don't no, even know what that we is. Had videos. Yeah, yeah. Like really. Like I can't imagine what use there would be for them anymore. But we didn't have videos. Like, yeah. If you did, it would just be television, and but they, there was no VCR players until no. I was in college, so none of those things were really readily available um, yeah. outside of a television studio, um, and so yeah, they had these little, it was a little projector, and then this piece of film, it was like a piece of movie film, and it would have single frames in it, and it would project on the wall, and mm. they would be on a topic, and it was a, it was a reasonably good learning tool, but it was very low tech. Like yeah. and you would play the recording that accompanied the film strip. Wow. It was less production than having to show a film because they also showed films in mm-hmm. classes a lot, which they probably didn't when you were a kid either, because why would they? You could just watch television. Yeah. Um and it would cling and you would Advance, you would click it and it would move to the next single frame of film and that would have a chart on it or a picture or mm-hmm. a paramecium or whatever <laughs> it was you were studying. Yeah. But they were all, you know, basically photographs. But that's not the cling I'm no, talking about. No, you're talking about the cling from, um, the, I it is a term that I use about, it was popular, I guess, maybe it still is, but when I was a kid there was a sort of, finality to the lesson, thus endeth the lesson, Mm -hmm. um, kind of moment. And there was the, you let your daddy sleep on Sunday morning. He's been working hard the whole week through. If you let him sleep on Sunday morning, then he'll gladly play with you. Cling. (laughs) And that was the way that cold endings were handled for...
0: Children's. And these were
1: records for children, yes, right, yeah. And you're getting a lesson, and you're getting a little song that right. I apparently still remember. I mean, 117 you really years do. later, every word you uh, did not blank on a single line, no, not a bit. I, I, there's no place in my head for geometry or algebra, mm-hmm. but by God, I can remember every jingle and childhood <laughs> record that I ever heard. I just, it's one of those things.
0: You have a jingle mind,
1: I guess so. It's Absolutely. very jingly up there. That's for.
0: For sure. Anyway, right. anyway, so yes,
1: so cling, cling. I'm not even sure why we were talking about. Well,
0: you—that was the true crime uh, movie time summer film festival sound effect you were doing, cling. cling. So last week we discussed a documentary about Al Capone versus Elliot Ness. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the 1987 film *The Untouchables*, which is based on the story of Elliot Ness and Al Capone. We think, or we thought, going into it, we'll see as we discuss it. Well, that's how
1: the true crime movie time. Um, movie pairings right. work. We do first the facts, and then we do a movie version based on the the, the true crime, the, and we see how the facts match up with the movie. Sometimes it's very um, loyal to the facts, and sometimes it's a lot of creative license. A happening. lot
0: of creative license. And so, when we, we talked about this at the end of the episode last week, but I'll do a little refresher if you're just joining us for the first time. Um, when we finished watching the documentary, which we watched separately, we both had sort of different questions about what the movie was going to reveal. And we had both seen the movie before. You saw the movie when it first came out. I the saw theater. it in the movie theater, yeah. I think I saw it on VCR, but it was pretty soon after it came out. I remember being seeing the promotions and all that sort of stuff. When did uh, it come out? 1987, says okay. IMDb. Um, so I... Wanted to know how much Al Capone there was in the movie. I couldn't remember. I could remember that Robert De Niro played him. I could remember preview clips of De Niro doing Capone shtick. But I didn't remember how much of him was in the story. So that was what I was curious about. What were you interested in seeing?
1: I was interested in seeing how um, Elliot Ness was portrayed. Mm -hmm. Like how accurate they were going to be about his much more media-driven personal self-promotion-driven version that was portrayed in the documentary. Right. Kind of to my surprise, I had not heard him portrayed in that way, and I actually had a little bit more respect for him Mm. as a result of it, because he seemed less of a goob Mm -hmm. um, who was just Dudley do-writing it, that he was actually a savvy person who was not... Inadvertently stumbling into justice, he was going in with a plan and a pretty well-informed approach to yeah. doing the job, as opposed to just accidentally. Yeah, getting Al Capone, which was kind of the way he's always been portrayed. Portrayed that kind of David and Goliath thing of just a, you know, of, of lucking into the lucky shot.
0: Um, the interesting thing about the documentary, I think, is set up for this too, is how much enormous pressure was on him to get Capone. From the president himself, I want you to get Capone. One of the big uh, historical events, crimes, covered in the documentary was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre where Capone used his own men to pretend to be cops to trick a rival gang's team into disarming and then shot them all up against the wall That is nowhere in this movie. I could not have been more shocked. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre is not depicted in The Untouchables, and the documentary presents it as one of the primary reasons Ness went after Capone full tilt because the president said, I want this scourged, rid, rid from the streets of Chicago. I mean, it was just gruesome. It was a massacre. It was like a, the equivalent of what we would consider a I school shooting. I wonder how we
1: would react to it today. I wonder yeah. if it would seem like as big a deal now that we've become so inured to mass shootings I know in our culture because of our insane notion about yeah. arming ev- absolutely everybody. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. It's yeah. A, it is it, – it, maybe they didn't, maybe it was true then. Maybe they didn't include it because it didn't seem like an inciting incident. That's
0: really, that's interesting. I, I, you know, like, what was your biggest shock watching the movie again?
1: Oh, well, it was overall, it was a kind of overall reaction to the quality of the yes, movie itself. I, was, I just too. thought, wow, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> I it was like, God, I just, because one of the reactions I had this, uh, during to midwest whatchamacallit, you call it midwest mayhem yeah. um was I was looking at this and I was thinking, oh, good. Well, the quality of the films are. There's going to be an yeah. uptick in the quality of the films because we last month was like, wow, okay, we've done some real uh, out there's like movies we're a TV that were like, movie from 1986 oh, about the Hillside Stragglers. What were we expecting? God, that was yeah. really terrible. There was mm-hmm. some, and so I thought, oh, good. We're gonna there'll be an upgrade in the movies this time. So <laughs> I'm really I'm looking forward to this month. And I watched this movie and I just thought, wow, this is a real piece of shit. Like <laughs> everything's wrong with it. Like yes. everything. I just really I hated it didn't too. I hated it. And I have to say, I love Patricia Clarkson. I think Patricia Clarkson is a wonderful actress and and I it was really striking to me. She's the only woman in this entire movie. Entire. I don't think there is another speaking part for there a woman isn't. in the entire movie. None. She was alone on the set with a lot of sausage. Yeah. Um, like just her and 50,000 men. Right. Um, and she was unbelievably miscast in this part. I yeah. just thought – I didn't believe – Any scene with her was just—I just felt bad for her. I was like, oh, I can't believe—you're so good, and I cannot believe you're being asked to play this simp that your character has been written as. And, yeah, everything about it was just—Kevin Costner— Here's my
0: theory. Here's my theory. Yes. Okay. Um, Brian De Palma has made some interesting stuff. Yeah, hand gestures are I'm happening. The, hand doing gestures. I I'm yes, you're an excessive director. Air quotes. Right. David Mamet, I don't agree with his politics. He's written some wonderful stuff. And this is not one of them. And he is credited as the screenwriter, and I'm telling you, he didn't write this script. 90 90 studio doctors wrote this script, and this movie was completely edited together in the final cut by the studio chief at the time. I'm telling you, whatever, whoever was running Paramount at the time, whether it was Sherry Lansing, turned this into this schmaltzy, cheesy superhero movie. It
1: was just
0: inexcusably
1: bad. I just, I hope, David. didn't write it. I mean, like, I'm not the biggest David Mamet fan, but this was just a terrible script. It has none of the hallmarks of his
0: writing. It has none of the dialogue. He does rapid-paced patter. He does long talking scenes, almost like harder, rougher Aaron Sorkin. None of that's there. I can't believe he wrote this script. You know, I don't know. Anything's possible, but it
1: was very hard for me to believe that this was a David Mamet script.
0: Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm glad you agree, because that's what I was thinking. Oh, my God. Was, this I just, is not the
1: movie I remember. It was like Robert De Niro played Al Capone like he was playing the Penguin. Right, yeah. Like Danny DeVito was more threatening right. as the Penguin than this this absurd, overblown comic character.
0: The, here's, here's the thing that drives me nuts about movies. I think it's a nuanced point, but I think it's important. It's when... The orchestral soundtrack of the scene tries to give you the scene before the scene is actually happening. Like, it, it's we're in Elliot Ness's house and we've not seen anyone, and it's a close up on the calendar, and the music is swelling as if butterflies are flitting across the frame. And it's like you need something in the action of your movie to actually trigger this emotional groundswell coming out of As the- opposed
1: to a love note being written on the back <laughs> of a calendar page to go in his lunch that Patricia Clarkson is packing for him. While she- oh. Now go out there and do good. Yeah. Like it was just the most re- wretched. I mean, it was just, I could not believe, boy, this did not hold up. The uh, yeah. only scene, well, I don't know how you want to go through it. There was only one scene that I actually- clearly remembered from the movie. And I was like, after I watched the documentary, I thought, huh, wonder how that fits into the, 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 the story, because I didn't really see from the documentary where in the story that scene would even have taken place.
0: Well, I think, okay, let's get some stuff out of the way and then we can just free range about this because I think taking people through the movie blow by blow would be excruciating. But, you know, my question was how much Capone was in it. The answer is not very much. It's not Al Capone's story. He's
1: comic relief.
0: Yeah, he's comic relief. We see him do one gruesome, terrible thing, which is beat one of his own associates to death with a
1: baseball bat at a dinner. At a dinner dinner. party at a fabulous Chicago hotel. Which This is somebody who killed his own... um, assassins so that they wouldn't be able to implicate him. Right. Kills in front of a room full of people. Kills somebody at a public place. It was ridiculous.
0: The St. Valentine's Day massacre, nowhere to be found. Nowhere. Um, The, uh, the, um... Incident of Elliot Ness mistakenly pursuing casks and barrels that were not filled with liquor yet but only rinsed out is not depicted. Instead, he's shown as giving given a false lead to crates full of umbrellas. Okay, same idea but different execution. Just ridiculous. Um, none of the specifics of the Untouchables team are the same. The names Done. were all changed. Done. Um, it
1: didn't match up at all Yeah. It was the, the none of the specifics of how it played out were um were included it was there was a lot more from the documentary we were told only one member of the mm-hmm. um the team was had been killed during the course of the investigation and only two members survived right. um, this particular telling of the story.
0: Um, Sean Connery plays a character, a rough Irish cop who, for reasons that are not entirely clear, is working a street beat in old age, which is strange for police officers um, to be on the street at that age. We're told. We're told. And he is sort of the the mentor wizard figure for, for Kevin Costner's Elliot Ness. No trace of him in the documentary. <laughs>
1: I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author, C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th. Along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring, it's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher.
0: So, yeah, I think it's just time to go all in on how bad this movie is. Oh, well,
1: I, you know, I think there's some some value in discussing in kind of laying out the format in right. so we can talk about how bad it is as we go along telling about mm-hmm. the movie. There was there it was it was an absurd depiction of pretty much everybody. Probably the only thing that I thought and maybe that's the thing to do. The only thing I thought they kind of leaned into and got right was um, Capone's incredibly Cozy relationship with the media. Mm. It was clear that he was a media darling, mm-hmm. and that the media had created him. He gives a series of press conferences throughout the picture mm-hmm. that are um, that clearly depict that he was this witty, clever, right JFK-like. Has figures. him eating out of his hands, right? right. Yeah. And they they write down every word, and they are not big fans of Elliot Ness. They do not report on him favorably. The police department is everything but twirling their mustaches. It was the most egregiously Mm -hmm. depicted. Like, I'm sure they were corrupt. That was clearly the part of the problem. But the way in which they were depicted as being corrupt was that sort of absurd Mm -hmm. kind of oversimplistic, hyper-simplistic depiction of corruption as they were just these cartoon character characters. Uh, villains, yeah, who were actively doing everything to obstruct and and uh, destroy right his campaign and bullying him in the office, putting mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. bad headlines on his door, and it was just absurd. Yeah, it was that sort of relationship. The relationship with his wife was ridiculous. Yeah, she had no reaction to. He had a bunch of children, which the Documentary said he didn't have. Yeah, he didn't have children. Um, Yeah. Uh, uh, She was pregnant. The the magical policeman who's mm -hmm. there to tell them everything. The only scene I remember from the movie, remembered prior to seeing it, was the one where in order to convince somebody to confess to a crime, Sean Connery shoots a dead man. In the head in front of him.
0: Kevin Costner, doesn't he? I thought thought it was Kevin Costner who shot him. No,
1: Sean Connery. Kevin Costner's, they're trying to get the guy to, uh, they've they've gone to the border with Canada.
0: Which is nowhere in the documentary. Nowhere in the documentary,
1: although they did talk about. Cutting off the supply of, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was more Great Lakes driven than yeah. going to a border that did not look like it was anywhere near. It looked Canada. like the
0: Badlands of North Dakota, yeah, Pretty much yeah. or South very Dakota, possibly
1: a part of California. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> looked nothing like Canada was involved. Um, there's a bridge, and they're gonna they 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 there's the Canadian import is coming, and the. Capone's people are coming with a bag full of cash to pay for. Them. This is the least most vulnerable, sort of handoff of money and crime, and they brought all of this documentation of mm-hmm. of crimes. There's a ledger with every criminal enterprise completely detailed, and it's, it's absurd. But they need, but it's in code, right. so they need the guy to the. Uh, I guess he's a bookkeeper of sorts, but he's the bag man right. to. Uh, own up to what the codes are, and he won't tell them. And they've already killed somebody else. There was this terrible shootout because the Canadians jumped the gun. They couldn't keep their powder dry. Those they, those, those Canadians, hot-headed Canadians. Right? Yes, absolutely. All those terrible Canadian-mounted police right. came riding down onto the bridge and almost screwed the whole thing up. Right,
0: yeah. I just So there was that and that and that. And
1: then— There's because the guy's dead on the porch when the guy won't talk. Sean Connery goes out on the porch, so they're seeing him through the window. He grabs the dead guy up by his lapels, demands that he tell him. He says, I'm gonna put this, you can't talk with a gun in your mouth. He puts the gun in the corpse's mouth Mm -hmm. and says, I'm gonna get count of three, and then he shoots him through the head. Well, the guy witnesses the whole thing, and then of course, he spills all the beans, which was like, and that was one of the things that happened during the course of this. The untouchables became kind of contemptible figures they all Mm -hmm. began to participate in sort of hideous unsubstantiated not Mm -hmm. historically supported violent Mm -hmm. behavior right um in response to Capone it was which I also thought was really like a disturbing component
0: the 1980s of the movie for me that was really like the unchecked White guy hero is allowed to do anything in, in stopping the evil criminal scourge in a city, the vigilante aspect of it. That was like Reagan era to me. That was where the movie it was dated itself. Gross. Yeah. It was
1: really, I was, um, yeah, I was, that was the part, the only part that really bothered me. I was, yeah. Because that was just genuinely not true. There's uh, Capone sends uh, an assassin to kill uh, the beloved a Sean Connery mm-hmm. character, the magical policeman. Right. Um and, he, uh, and and Kevin Costner realizes during the court trial of Capone that the assassin is there. Yes. Because he's still got the matchbook with the address that in was, it.
0: Let's go. Let's really be writers on that. The, the chain of weakness around that discovery. So the assassin wears a gun into the courtroom. Kevin Costner sees it in his coat, uses it as cause to have the bailiff pull him out. They empty out his pockets. And then Kevin Costner finds a matchbook in which the assassin wrote the address of Sean Connery to kill him. So and the we've, dumbest, seen him, we've
1: seen him earlier yes. using the matchbook as his it's, guide to who to kill. It's film logic so knows for an eight-year-old. So then they like have a shootout. Just, yeah. In the hallways of the courtroom, yeah. as he chases him onto the roof, and then once he catches the bad guy and overcomes him, right? Um, he says, "You know, okay, come with me. You're going down for this." And he says, "Oh yeah, you know, see how you, I'm getting, waiting for the expression on your face when I walk and get free of mm-hmm. this crime because you'll never be able to prove that I did it." And so Kevin Costner throws him off the roof. Right. Exactly. And I was like, "Oh my God, that's." Yeah. That's really a leap. That is yeah. that is not fair even to the more modified version of Elliot Ness that we were being mm-hmm. – uh, apprised of in the documentary it was i was i found that disturbing and i found it you're right it was another example of weak scripting he also just happened to have in his pocket and this speaks to something you wanted to bring up Mm -hmm. um a list of all the jurors by name and the amount that they had accepted in bribes because you know gangsters are very well noted for keeping very accurate detailed records of their um bribery schemes and right. carrying them around with yes them into po- very vulnerable public places like a courtroom where yeah with your gun you could be searched for anything it was just absurd and then
0: yeah what what, what are you queuing up because i wanted judge- to go back to the yeah so the that this is the thing right okay the the Capone, De Niro is being arrogant and he's acting like he's got the trial in the bag. So the the prosecuting attorney is turning around and saying to Elliot Ness, I don't know what he has up his sleeve, but he's acting like he's got this thing in the bag. So then it turns out they find they get the list of jurors, as you just described and Oh, he's bribed the jury, which is the opposite of what happened in real life. Right. He, he couldn't bribe the jury and the jury didn't like him and it was sinking him in the trial. yes.
1: So, it really sank him. They sentenced him to (laughs) 11 years in prison.
0: So, the judge refuses to do anything in chambers. He refuses to do anything about the jury until Kevin Costner says, Clear the room, which the judge allows. And then you just stares at him. And then we cut to the judge glowering behind his, uh, you know, his. And this was my favorite. And they say to Elliot Ness, What did you say to him? He said, I told him his name was on the list. And they said, Was it? And he said, No but the judge judge was on the take
1: but the judge says okay right. go next door <laughs> and get the jury from the trial next door and bring them over we're going to switch the juries we're not going to do whatever we're not going to do anything that would be legally supportable here we're going to completely invalidate the outcome of this trial by swapping juries with a divorce trial in the in the room next door None are divorces the- decided by juries None like of-
0: Have even heard the evidence? I guess they're just they 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 make no indication they're going to start the whole trial over. They just we'll let the we'll we'll sum it up for them real quickly and just let them cast dispersion. Was the
1: most ridiculous thing I've and there was a whole series of that. All of it was like they portray. The, the killing of Sean Connery. He's this incredibly savvy yeah. guy who gets the drop on them and then steps out and makes himself a target yeah. for his ultimate killing. But after being shot 142 times with a machine gun, he then crawls down the hallway and writes out the address that he hasn't told anybody. Right. He finds out the address of the the location of the, the, um, the accountant that they're looking for right. because there was an assassination in the— Police station, right? Where the assassin only has to show up in a in a police uniform. So it was that version of oh, they gave the prisoners to the wrong people,
0: right? Right?
1: Like, like I'm sorry, there was no paperwork. There was no nothing. There just some guy, a police officer shows up and de- and he faces away and doesn't let you see his face yeah. in the elevator and the. Uh, The guy from The Untouchables, one of the members of The Untouchables, and the prisoner who Sean Connery convinced to give them the codes for the ledger that was the key to everything Mm -hmm. that they got in Canada during that big raid that they ran in Canada with the Mounties. Right. Yeah, it was just – it was this made-up, Dudley-do-right list of crap put together with bad script elements like Mm -hmm. that. Like, you just – handed a prisoner over. There was no guard. Nobody was armed. Mm -hmm. Nobody was in any way prepared to protect him. They just handed him over to this Guy who just shows up in the elevator. They've never seen him before. No policemen accompany them. They just give him to the guy. That's just such bad At a time
0: when in real life you had the president involved in this case. Like Mm -hmm. you had, like, like the reason.
1: And if it was, and if it was a trial about the income tax, it would have been a federal (laughs) trial, not a local one.
0: But, and you know, and I think the reason all of this had to be puffed into the screenplay is that. They were not going to go after him for something they couldn't get him on. He was a wily enough operator. He was also playing the media well, as you said. They needed to really dot their I's and cross their T's, and that's why they ultimately decided to go the tax evasion route. Because
1: because it was easily provable. that He had millions of dollars and he had never he had not filed an income tax return in ten years, which is already probably illegal, but he hadn't accounted for any of his income. So it was right. like, yeah, okay, that we can get him for because he Literally hasn't filed taxes.
0: I it just, I, I looked something up and I know this is a fool's errand, but how the fuck does, is this movie certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes? It has an 82% score from the critics. Now, the summary is stick on the slick on the surface, but loaded with artful touches. I actually thought that said stick to the surface.
1: <laughs> it was an advice. The Brian De Palma's
0: classical. Not classic, classical gangster thriller is a sharp look at period Chicago crime featuring excellent performances from a top notch cast. Disagree here at TDPS well, Presents. I would say Nair. this
1: is a showcase of 80s filmmaking, like yeah. that Pollyachi scene where yeah. he's weeping over the, 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 yeah. the, yeah, opera that was singer in the preview. Yeah, Pagliacci while He's murdering and put off by the news that they've murdered Sean Connery, but he's crying over a fictional character in an opera. Like, it was all about those kinds of arty touches that were, I guess, a given of the moment, but not really a very substantial part of storytelling.
0: We have to look at how... Um, what what were the options in terms of portrayal of organized crime and popular inter- entertainment at this point? There were 30s gangster movies, then there were Scorsese films which were were really gritty. I think this was pre-Goodfellas. I think Goodfellas was like a year or two later. Yeah, Those were really gritty, like on the street, sometimes more contemporary, like 70s. I can't remember another big period gangster picture like this, and I remember that being the marketing hook when it came out, that there was nobody else at that level, that caliber, was tackling this subject matter. We were pre-Sopranos, we were pre peak. We were pre all of that.
1: I wonder where this, how connected in time, where this connects to Scarface.
0: Yeah. The
1: The Al Pacino. The
0: Al Pacino movie, yeah.
1: Because that was, that seems to be more where this is. That's about art and not about...
0: It came out after Scarface, I'm being told by the booth. But I'll confirm that right here on, yeah, 1983 was Scarface. So so
1: it was a period of that kind of... Maybe more art version of the telling of the story than yeah, than looking at it in terms of it being a crime drama because this was there was a lot of you know artsy fartsy but there was very little in the way of faxy waxy
0: spectacle is probably the word I would use. There is a giant shootout scene that was inspired by uh, an old film I, I think like maybe a silent film called Battleship Potemkin where the, oh yeah. my
1: god that. I thought I was going to <laughs> scream. <laughs> Tell us about the
0: scene. Tell it, us, like, okay,
1: once they have decoded um, the uh, a location of the accountant that Sean Connery has written in blood mm-hmm. as his dying act on the back of, I don't know, a, something out of the telephone book. But it's mm. that they, they're getting the accountant out of town because only he can decode the. Uh, the ledger that they've confiscated in the Canadian raid, and so they, they need to get him. So only two, Andy Garcia and, uh, and Kevin Costner, go to the trains, this grand cathedral-like train station, mm-hmm. which may or may not be in Chicago, to capture uh, the accountant and bring him in so that he can testify against Capone. And so they arrive there, they stake the place out, two of them, mm-hmm. two people, um, with guns. They walk in with shotguns mm-hmm. um, to stake out the the train station. And then we're subjected to, I'm going to say, 15 minutes of a woman trying to drag a baby carriage, baby carriage up a flight of marble stairs mm-hmm. while Kevin Costner looks at her doing it
0: debating whether or not to help her then finally he helps her but what he does, which it, and if he behaved rationally, the scene would end right there, is she should have taken the baby out of the carriage and he should have picked up the carriage in both hands and carried it up the steps. But Instead, that wouldn't have been an allusion
1: to Potemkin. Right. It would have been uh, its own. It would have made sense. And so bang, bang, he bang. He leaves the
0: baby in the carriage and he starts dragging it up one step at a time, as you just indicated, so that when the shootout finally breaks out, he has to let go of the carriage and the baby. Maybe in the carriage right go. Right at the top of the stairs. Right. So he
1: couldn't pull it one more step up and just right. leave it on the landing. So as they're having the shootout over the baby carriage, rolling back down the stairs yeah. with the mother screaming and only one guy there with a shotgun that really only fires twice, I think, mm-hmm. um, to defend against men with machine guns in an open shootout on a flight of stairs, right. marble stairs in... Uh, in a train station, to try and capture the accountant who's being defended by uh, the hen- evil henchmen of Al Capone. I'm, I'm
0: being told by the booth that he wants us to shut up because he still likes this movie. I think I hear I hear I hear a transmission <laughs> from Brandon and Master don't Control. You say,
1: don't you talk trash about Brandon? Brandon doesn't doesn't. I don't think Brandon has seen this movie since whenever he first saw it five hundred years or twenty years ago. That's what we were talking about at the break. Yeah, it's been a while for all of us, and this is one of those like, oh, this didn't work out. Like, I loved this movie when I saw it. I remember really thinking that's why I remembered that scene. I thought, well, isn't that good for him? He shot mm-hmm. the corpse and scared the guy into confessing, and it just seemed hideous the this particular telling. But the but the shootout at the train station, I think, was the pinnacle in art versus uh, watchability i'm christopher rice and i'm eric shaw quinn do you have a question or comment about this podcast then come share it with us on our facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show no spaces and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for
0: our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us.
1: Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later.
0: That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new
1: books. (laughs) Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here.
0: All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases.
1: Which you'll give me copies of. Because I'm sitting right here.
0: Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? I think we could do a podcast called This Is Not The Movie We Remember. (laughs) I think that would be a great... You had a movie night at your house for a while, and that's what it turned into. Somebody would be like, oh, I used to love this movie. Let's watch this movie. And then you were forced to sit there with your best friends as you all realized collectively that this movie did not hold up in the slightest. Oh, my God.
1: Like, oh, this is a terrible movie. How could I possibly have remembered? We had several. Probably the most... um, the the worst was the Dark Crystal. I just oh I could not believe how much I hated that movie. Yeah. and I had loved the Dark Crystal yeah. when I saw it when I first saw it. Saw it in the movie theater and thought it was just. But there wonderful. was nothing
0: else like it at the time. Nobody was doing anything serious with puppets and trying to create a dark
1: world. Like it was just so but static. The thing, it was the yeah, slowest thing the pacing I'd yeah. ever seen. I could not believe and I. I Just apparently that didn't play in the same way. I I guess life was slower then, and so it didn't bother me as much.
0: The most subtle one that we did that affected me the most because it was a subtle shift was Die Hard. My experience of, wow, this is a slow movie, because by the action film standards of today, where you have, what, Extraction 2 just hit Netflix and they spent... What were you telling me? Like months shooting one action scene? Right. Die Hard is a lot of people talking on walkie-talkies by comparison. It's like, wow.
1: And then the occasional somebody gets, there's some shootout. Right, yeah. It happens, but mostly it's talking. Yeah. And
0: the big effect in Die Hard is Hans Gruber falling out a window with what is clearly, you know, blue screen behind him. And at the time, it was like the most amazing effect we'd ever... Oh, my God, look at the technology. Yeah, look at like, where look it is. Look how far
1: they've come since Vertigo. <laughs> 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 there are not any colored swirls
0: behind him. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, but it, that's that's kind of the superficial stuff. But I think there is a case to be made that a lot of this movie's attitude towards the subject matter was driven by the time period in which it was actually made, which was in the 1980s, which was a different time in movie making.
1: I clearly you know, was, like, and that's what we were talking about before the break, yeah. was that, that sense. Of what they we even we were just also discussing in between the the during the break the the advent of that this was maybe in some in part based on one of the credited writers, um, Fraley
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the film actually wrote a television series in the fifties, I think. Nineteen
0: fifty nine, it looks like the Untouchables starring Robert S- hello, young Robert Stack. My yes, stars. Yeah, hello, was, sorry. Yeah, T V um <laughs> we're still a gay podcast, guys. Yeah, still okay. gay.
1: Still gay, even though we're doing a lot of crime. Um yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it, it but it was that, that was it was also an allusion to that. Like I've right. always wanted to um remake Perry Mason. Yes. That, but a remake of the version that was actually the television show, maybe right. even shoot it in black and white, right. and do that sort of overly, over-the-top noir kind mm-hmm. of, almost in a loving and almost light-hearted kind of yeah. way. Because it gets to be sort of amusing now mm-hmm. to hear characters actually say those, you know, button your lip or I'll yeah. slip you my, you know, like, whatever. Um, yeah. That kind of talk. Mm-hmm. Um would be fun to do. I, I'm sorry that HBO made such a hash of it and decided to turn uh, Perry Mason, right. this hero of the underdog, into this drunken loser who can't mm. even save his own dairy farm. Because mm-hmm. that's Perry Mason. What what a piece of shit that turned out to be. Right. Um, but yeah, I so I think there was maybe some effort on the on the part of this to do. Right. Um, an allusion to Mm -hmm. those others, to earlier versions of this particular story, but it was a more arty kind of approach to telling this. I think The Godfather kind of led into that because there's an artiness to The Godfather itself. The the
0: Godfather, I I would say the big difference is, and this was a thing, you know, my mother was a big fan, as you know, of The Godfather. And the thing that appealed to her about it is she felt, I think particularly as a novel, that you were fully inside the alternate reality of organized criminals for the first time that it was that that was something that was beginning to happen in the 70s and I think that's something we may talk about in our next few episodes because we're going to head in that direction with one of them um that it was we they were entertaining alternate viewpoints in a in a committed way in a way that they hadn't before absolutely yeah it
1: was from the other perspective and it wasn't just the Jimmy Cagney kind of, yeah, uh, almost cartoon character perspective no. of the bad guy it was something that was more, um, in in the vein of Anne Rice, who yeah. gave us the everything from the, the vampire, vampire, right, from the vampire's point of view for the first time, where sure. like one of the least present done productions of dracula and dracula is the smallest part in the whole play because it's really not about dracula right he's just this inciting incident he's this monster who shows up periodically but mm-hmm. mostly you don't know anything about him he's just
0: bad right or
1: evil or monster it's the shark it was like what if we did it, right what if we did jaws from the shark's perspective and yes the the that's what i'm saying about the um the The Godfather was mm-hmm. it was that very sort of artistic rendering of who these characters were and how they wound up becoming the sort of terrible people that they became. And this didn't succeed in that. No,
0: it didn't. This, but this, I think, is the 1980s pushback against that mentality. I think this is the more conformist. This is raw. Law and order. This is like we were saying the law and order people are allowed to do whatever they need to do to get the guy right, and we can't hold them to the same moral and standards we hold everybody that else. Way
1: as a country, yeah. a, legislation was happening. And things were happening to begin to move in a different direction in our own approach to crime, and so maybe it's more of a ref- more of a reflection than yeah. is comfortable now. To um It it
0: it played for me like a superhero movie. I don't I don't say that to praise it, but that was the that was like the aesthetic of it. That it was so it was very comic booky. Even the composition of the shots, the slow dolly down to show the assassin looking, and those were like frames from a comic book. And so
1: the question is this: Where does this? How does this connect with Batman? When did Batman come out? When did um, the 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 one where? You know, is did his portrayal of Al Capone come before or after Danny DeVito played the uh, the Penguin?
0: Uh, Batman was shortly thereafter. It was 1989. That was the Michael Keaton Batman with um, uh, Kim Basinger, and then I would say you're looking for the Penguin portrayal, so that would be Batman Returns let's let's that was 1992 so it was surely so after so he that.
1: so it may have even inspired those yeah. those kinds of productions because it has that it's it seems more akin to that as you're pointing out mm-hmm. than it does to the actual events or the the truth of this story
0: yeah exactly but, yeah, man, you're taking me back to the Esplanade Multiplex in suburban New Orleans oh where we saw all these She movies looked pretty
1: scared to me. You
0: love Batman
1: Returns. Oh, that was my favorite line. I thought we were just going to scare her. She looked pretty scared to me. Yeah. Yeah, I just love – that's the kind of noir dialogue that I just – Yeah. That I, that I wanted to do in my version of – of Perry Mason that maybe will happen one day.
0: Maybe one day. So we, we I'm going to put you on the spot because there was something else we talked about last week. We haven't brought it up this week, I don't think, which is that the revelation that Al Capone had a brother, Vincenzo, who abandoned the family. Because it sounds like the family was had a lot of crazy criminals in it, like his brother Al. And he became a, a storied lawman who was a sheriff in Nebraska and worked, bodyguard
1: to the president. Bodyguard and-
0: to President Jennifer Coolidge, and uh, <laughs> no, he um, <laughs> he uh, he worked to restore relations between Native populations and the locals. He just and they tried to get him to testify on Al's behalf, and he wouldn't do it. And um, you want to hear his story?
1: That's the story. So, though. how
0: would you tell his story?
1: Oh, I would absolutely tell the story of how he perceived this unfolding. Like yeah. somebody else takes over. He's the eldest. Mm-hmm. And yet his younger brother, because of cultural influences and because the money that uh, that the younger brother, by pursuing a life of crime, is able to bring into the family, becomes the head of the family. And mm-hmm. he's he goes on the road. You know, he like runs away from home, not because he's the bad guy, Mm -hmm. but because he's the good guy and doesn't want to be a part of, of that kind of life. Right. I I would have to pursue the facts of the story. But if in fact he does join the circus, um, with Buffalo Bill, so Buffalo Bill teaches him how to become a crack shot, Mm -hmm. right? That could be fun. And his developing a sense of, you know, the rightness and wrongness of things in the world, him getting a job as a, um, as a peace officer in Nebraska maybe somewhere along the 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 tour all the while as he's doing that you're seeing him observing the progress of his brother becoming this media titan mm-hmm. this celebrity this millionaire this huge success as he is continuing to you know, have the life that he's having on the run with on a made up name, right? Because he doesn't even want anybody to know that he might be related to this horrible man. So, you're are you flashing back to their childhood? Is
0: that all? I know well, you're not big on flashbacks.
1: I have to say, it would depend on what the story told me, yeah. You know, like if there were good parallels mm-hmm. between the one and the other, but yeah, I think what you want to try and find is a full circle. I remember reading. A short story in, well, I'm going to say seventh grade, and I cannot tell you who wrote it, or even the title of it. But it's, it's about the bullet. It's about somebody reading an article in the newspaper, and it, the article is about the death of their childhood friend. Mm. And he goes, he reminisces about the moment that their 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 paths diverged, mm-hmm. where the, the friend pursued a life of crime, and he went a different way and ultimately that's what killed the friend the police shot him or he was killed by another criminal mm-hmm. or whatever and he is remembering that moment that right. separate so if i could find a moment mm-hmm. where those that path diverged for the two characters and then Bring us back to that same moment in and around the trial.
0: Because there's some moment when they're children where Al Capone decides the Five Pointers gang is is where I'm going. And meanwhile, his brother's becoming obsessed with Buffalo Bill. Who was Buffalo Bill? I wanted to say he was a
1: lawman, but I don't know anything about Buffalo Bill. Well, I don't know a whole lot about Buffalo Bill because, once again, I'm actually not that old. (laughs) Um, But... I he was um, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill and those people were um, a traveling group of show showmen. I think Buffalo Bill was most noted for having killed Fuck. an enormous number of buffaloes during that what?
0: I fucking plug Buffalo Bill into Google and do you want to know what I get? A Wikipedia entry for the Silence of the Lamb serial
1: killer because he was Buffalo. Yeah, we <laughs> talked about. <laughs> yeah. Muffin, All Buffalo, right. I'm going.
0: I'm going. To, I'm going. William Frederick Cody, known as Buffalo Bill, was an American soldier, bison hunter and showman. So he wasn't he was a soldier, but he wasn't really a lawman. So no. OK,
1: but he went on tour and like the tour was your to went and went to Europe. I think he helped sort of create that yes. view of the Wild West in the United States. Yes all around the world by being this and they did fancy uh horse riding and trick shooting and yes. Annie Oakley became famous as part of his his tour as mm-hmm. his tour group and he sort of went along and I think God I think maybe Paul Newman and certainly Bridges, Jeff Bridges mm-hmm. made movies where they played the part. Mm-hmm. Um about him. So there's there's more out, out yeah. about him. But he was very much about the um the portrayal. I think he's even a character in uh Penny Dreadful. I think that Oh the Showtime like,
0: series from John Logan. Right, which yeah. I,
1: God, if you haven't seen that, my God, that's a good show. Um mm-hmm. but I think that the uh oh what is his name? Mm-hmm. The the uh, the werewolf character. Um Josh Hartnett. Josh Hartnett. Yeah, yes. I think Josh Hartnett had been a player in the the Buffalo Bill Cody. I think he even learned to shoot from him. I think he's part of some of the skills that he brings to that particular show. His right. sharp shooting ability came from having been a part of the um are, is everything okay Everything was
0: fine I was like is my iPad dead? I was I was queuing up to we're getting ready to talk about the next episode so I right. wanted to make oh, sure I had I see my it. notes I on see it. hand. I, see it. Yeah, um, I wasn't yeah. bored you weren't I think boring that, me. But I
1: think that um, they, he's even referenced in and, and alluded to in that because it's how he came to be, comes to be in England to begin with because yeah. it was part of Buffalo Bill Cody's tour. Traveling
0: show. Uh, yeah. His
1: traveling show but he was very much a vaudevillian mm-hmm. um, of the time who Sort of mythologized yeah. uh, the press. The, the the he was apparently also massacred large numbers of buffalo. Yeah, mm-hmm. which was a kind of a badge of honor that has come to be sort of a disgrace in later times as the things nearly went, the poor animals nearly went extinct. And
0: there was some sense that it was a deliberate move to corral and force indigenous peoples off their land that were pursuing the buffalo. Possibly. That was part of this extermination policy. The migratory yeah.
1: practices of Native Americans. Very possibly. I don't yeah. know that.
0: Well, we're starting another pairing next week. We're going to We're done
1: with this one apparently. We That's are done it. We're not with this one. Well, I just minute.
0: how many more times can we say we didn't like this movie? Yeah, spoiler but alert. Let me. So I, you are not a Brian De Palma fan.
1: I'm trying to think of something like there is a campy quality to Brian De Palma that occasionally yeah. works for me. Dress to Kill. I would hate. I couldn't really. Now it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Mm-hmm. I might hate it if I if I saw it again. Um, yeah. Uh, the. His knockoff, he does sort of knockoff versions of Mm -hmm. other people's movies, which I'm not a big fan of. Like Mm -hmm. the blow up and blow out are not really equivalent, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, okay, no, Um, hard no on that. So he occasionally does stuff that I I would have to look at his. Um, his resume. Well, too. he did carry, right? Oh my God. Yes, he did carry. And I love Carrie. Yeah. That's one of my all time favorites. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So That's that one, what I
0: think was what I was remembering. That's why I pegged you as a De Palma
1: fan. Yeah. Cause... And like, he has his moments. Yeah. He does. Like, there's sometimes, but he, there was, yeah, there was the knockoff movies that I'm not a big fan of, not as much of a fan of. And then they're occasionally, they're like this, where it's just like, this is just over-the-top preposterous. I'm just not as... But Carrie was... Yeah, Carrie is amazing.
0: So... Next week, we're headed to YouTube, which we do occasionally because we want to talk about a specific crime and we can't find a documentary about it that is easily streamable on the regular services. So, and usually the documentary we end up finding is British and that's why we can only find it on YouTube. So, what, 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 you found something? Body Double. Body Double.
1: Body Double is one of those things like it's probably not a great movie, but it is so he moves into territory that I haven't ever seen a director move into. Yeah. Pretty frankly in that movie that's like, okay, wow. This is like, I would love to almost remake body double in a sort of modern Mm -hmm. uh, kind of tone with less of the campy and more of the, the tone of it. Because yeah, it is really, it's this, it is the erotic thriller, Mm -hmm. you know, it's maybe the first time I really encountered that. And it, it's pretty. It's, it's again. It's one of his knockoff movies. It's just Rear Window mm-hmm. um, that he's kind of modernized and, and updated, but it moves people into territory that's like, wow, I haven't really seen this treated in the movies. So occasionally he does. Okay. he he gets he gets it right, and sometimes mm-hmm. mm, okay, not as
0: much. All right, so not a completely unfair no. accusation. No. Okay, so next week we're starting a pairing about the spree killings of Charles Starkweather. And the documentary we're going to be talking about can be found on YouTube on the uh, Our Life YouTube channel, which is actually operated by ITV Studios out of the UK. It is called The Real Natural Born Killer, Charles Starkweather, Born to Kill. That's literally what you should search for on YouTube if you want to watch it. And then we're going to pair that with the 1970s Terrence Malick movie, Badlands, which claims to be inspired by the Charles Starkweather murder. So that is our next pairing, our next um, move in the True Crime summer, Movie Time Summer Film Festival, which we still haven't learned to say without error here at the TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Eric, any final thoughts?
1: We've got all summer to practice saying the title, <laughs> so maybe— at some point, we'll get it.
0: But uh, so let's figure this out. Are we? I think we're going to go beyond summer because we've got two more regions. Well, we to didn't do. even
1: start in the summer. So <laughs> it's all just kind of completely preposterous. But, but yeah, sure. We're just calling it this. And you can watch it in the summer if you want to. But you could also watch it in the winter. It's, Absolutely. Uh, it's a podcast. So seasonality kind of becomes absurd when you try and say this week or next week or yeah. this month or because like really, I'm not sure that any of those terms kind of apply to something you could listen to five years later whenever you fucking feel like
0: it. And that's how we do these podcasts, so that they're perfect for whenever you fucking feel like right, it. Right,
1: because that's who we are. Christopher <laughs> and Eric, perfect for when you ever fucking feel
0: like <laughs> it. <laughs> whenever. All right, until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> and
1: I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> And
0: you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.